You're now listening to episode 119 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli joined here today with Paul Moore, real estate investor and syndicator. Today, we discuss the types of economic recoveries, and we speculate on the type of economic recovery we expect to see in the aftermath of COVID-19. We also discuss the pros and cons of investing in Delaware Statutory Trusts, aka DSTs for investors looking to reinvest 1031 exchange proceeds without the hassle of actively managing properties. Paul, thanks for taking time to come on the show today. For those of you who haven't listened to your first appearance on episode 50, would you be able to give our listeners a bit of information on your background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I sold my company uh, staffing firm in 1997 in Detroit to a publicly traded firm. And I thought, I'm an investor now. Well, I wasn't. I was really more of, instead of a full-time investor, I was more of a full-time speculator. I didn't know the difference between investing and speculation. And, you know, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you got a chance to make a return and speculating is when your principal is not at all safe. And that's what I was doing. So I learned a lot of hard lessons, but um, I ended up getting into house flipping, flipped a bunch of waterfront lots at a place called Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia, ended up doing a subdivision. And over the years, I kind of wondered how to get involved in commercial real estate investing, but I didn't know who to trust, where to start. And I eventually built a multifamily property in North Dakota and that went really well. But that was more of a one-time thing for me at the time. Then I decided to get into full-time multifamily, got really concerned over the last seven or eight years about multifamily being overheated. And that's when we expanded into self-storage and mobile home parks. And that's what we've been mainly focusing on through our funds right now. Uh, interesting story. It seems like, yeah, you have some experience from the flipping, from business angle, uh, really interesting stuff. So one of the things we do understand is that you you learned a lot during 2006 to 2009, the last kind of recession. So kind of a question is, what did you learn and how did it bring you to your investment strategy that you use today? Well, I had a million and a half dollars in the bank when I sold my company in 97. And exactly 10 years later in 07, through a mix of speculating and investing, I ended up with two and a half million in debt. And what I did learn was that, that that debt was all against real estate properties. And so I was able to sell all those properties, all but one actually, and uh, ended up you know debt-free right in the middle of the recession. And so I really, I mean, if you're going to go into debt, I think going into debt for real estate as opposed to a lot of other things was really helpful. Um, I, I learned, you know, some other things. I, I, I've learned over the years, every, I think every half decade or so, I get much more conservative than I was the last, the previous five years. And so I'm in one of those phases now where I'm getting much more conservative, much more careful, especially as we, as a Wellings Income Fund, as we work with other people's money, we're being much, much more careful 
taking the extra effort to do a lot more due diligence. I used to be kind of a FOMO guy, you know, the fear of missing out, but I'm, I'm kind of flipping that now. And I'm more of the guy who is okay with missing out as long as we're being safe. So before we hit record on this podcast or before we started the show, you were kind of talking about how you were pretty pessimistic with coronavirus breaking out earlier this year. Seeing that you've been through a couple of recessions, where do you stand today? How are you feeling about the market? You know, I I do a Bigger Pockets show on Saturdays and, and I talked week in and week out about the four different recovery types, you know, the V-shaped recovery, which is what we all wanted to see, but I really didn't believe that was very likely. And there's a lot of stats that would say that's not going to happen. I mean, even now there are. Uh, You know, I mean, how many, I mean, Wall Street's doing great, but what's happening on Main Street? I mean, I see a lot of restaurants, yoga studios, all kinds of things, you know, hair salons that are not coming back. Ken McElroy, the famous apartment investor, says that up to 42%, at least as of several months ago, of the jobs that were, were temporarily shelved during COVID might never come back. And so, I think there's a lot of reason to think that, that we might be more of a bathtub shape recovery, which is a second type. And that would be a, a U shape, if you will, you know, where you go down, you have a lot of bumps along the bottom and, you know, like gravel in the bottom of the bathtub and then a recovery later. Another possibility is a W shaped recovery where you have this initial burst of optimism, then a second drop. And that happened during the Great Depression 90 years ago. And then the uh, a fourth type would be the kind we absolutely don't want, which would be an L shape. And that's more like Japan in the 90s. They went down and there was just just long, slow crawl along the bottom. And so that's kind of like the four different recovery types I thought I would see out there. I'm still not convinced that this so-called V-shaped recovery is real. I really think that, you know, it's an election year with every one of the House of Representatives, as always and a third of the Senate and the president all being reelected. I'm just suspicious that this might be a false recovery we're seeing right now. Ken McElroy is still convinced that we're going to go down into a deep bottom. Dave Steck, who I respect a lot, also feels the same way. So what about you guys? I'm going to be honest. I think we're going to go into, based on the things you just said, into the W. I think actually there's, a, we have not, I think right now it's like a false this is just my kind of gut based on everything I've read and listened to is uh, that we're like in that false recovery and we're going to have another sharp downturn. And then at some point we'll later recover what that looks like beyond that next downturn. I don't know, but I think that's where we are. I think we're going to hit another downturn at some point, mainly because right now, like the government, the, the economy is being propped up by all this money coming from right. the government and like it's like covering a wound with a band-aid and the wound's not healing the wound's not healing so when all these loans come due when all the chickens come home to roost right um i i think there's going to be some trouble for people and um it's just right now like i said uh people are just being propped up by the government when howard marks from oak tree investments is raising the largest distressed debt and asset funds he ever has uh, you know, he's called the king of distressed debt since I think since 89. You know, we know what he believes, at least he believes there's going to be huge, huge defaults on the horizon. 
Yeah, I've I've done a, a lot of reading of Ray Dalio's yeah. newsletters that he's been sending out. And I think that it's really interesting on his perspective. And he's kind of looking at this as the start of the collapse of the U.S. empire, essentially. And his whole thing is history repeats itself over and over and over and over and over. It's like, we haven't seen this, but it's happened before. And that that's his, his kind of like theme throughout everything that he does. I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't really know where I... I do think that I'm very conservative at this point. You know, we, my wife and I have some cash and we're not really sure what to do with it. And normally, I mean, in a non-COVID situation, I, I wouldn't feel like that. So I think for me, it's just kind of sitting on my hands and waiting and, and just to see how it all plays out. <laughs> and yeah. we've, got, we've got counterparts in the CPA industry that are in the uh, food and beverage space and they're like laying people off and mm-hmm. so, i mean it, this uh, it cuts deep it cuts deep you know it's not just the workers it's everybody that ever services the the establishments everybody's getting hit yeah. by this absolutely i mean one of the gyms that i go to the gym that's four minutes away from my house is not coming back it's over and the other gym that's right near me too was also not coming back so i mean there's there's these businesses. Oh, and there's a shopping center right near me where half the entire shopping center was wiped out. It's done. So, I mean, I just don't know what's going to happen to to some of these. Like, if you just look at it from a real estate perspective, what's going to happen to all these commercial properties and with the retail and some of the office that just is not going to come back. Right. I mean, we had 12. No, it turned out to be 9,400 retail closings in 2019 in one of the very best economic years in world history of any economy. And, you know, they're predicting 24,000, I think, uh, retail closings this year. You know, what the online revolution was causing has just been accelerated by COVID. For sure. Things have definitely changed. This kind of brings us into the next question here, which is actually a pretty good transition. How have you basically designed your funds over the last number of years to kind of protect yourself or protect your investors against these type of situations that basically help them weather a recession. Yeah. So when we were looking at different asset types, we were looking for asset types, number one, that didn't have a majority of institutional type operators. And so while multifamily, I still love it. I mean, like I said, I wrote a book on it, but multifamily does have a lot of people who have already done the value adds, who have already done the improvements, a lot of companies who have just done a phenomenal job with apartments. And so it's really hard to find a real 1980 vintage that needs a lot of remodeling to bring it up to speed. But in self-storage and mobile home parks, that's not the case. There are a significant number. There, are, It's believed that there are 45,000 mobile home parks in the U.S. and about 40,000 are owned by mom and pop owners. They don't have the resources, the desire, or the knowledge to improve the income and therefore improve the value. And so there are phenomenal opportunities still, and there's tens of thousands of them, uh, where the aging owner, you know, at some point would like to get out. You can pay them a fair price, which is actually more than they ever dreamed of getting, and still have a whole lot of runway to improve the value of that property. I mean, I've seen many I could tell you about where the value of the equity has been tripled in like two years. Now, I mean, you know, that that means, you know, the value of the property might've gone up 60% based on just improving some things that were easy for a professional, 
but almost insurmountable for a mom and pop. And it's the same in the self-storage arena. That makes a lot of sense. And um, understand that you recently, speaking of self-storage, you open up a Wellington's Direct Storage Delaware Statutory Trust or DST. Would you be able to talk about that a little bit? What does, you know, what, what is the benefit yeah. of that for investors? So my company, uh, Wellings Capital, was really frustrated. We had a stream of investors coming to us for probably the last four years who we couldn't help. And, you know, they were doing 1031 exchanges and they would say, hey, can we invest in your syndication or your fund? And I said, you know, I had to say no because there were all these restrictions, which we could circle back to if you want to. But for now, I'll just say we had to say no. And when somebody came to me last summer and said, hey, I got $2.1 million to invest, and I've got a lot more behind that. And these are 1031 exchanges I've been rolling forward since the 90s in some cases. There is no way at this point I'm going to pay for all of that, you know, all the depreciation recapture all the capital gains, I have got to do something. And I said, well, I mean, yeah, you can pay all that tax and join our fund. And he said, no, I'm just going to give you some cash. So he invested some cash with us. But when he, when he sold that, he called me back later and said, hey, I plowed that $2.1 million into a DST, a Delaware Statutory Trust. And so I started researching that about a year ago. And we realized, wow, this is a phenomenal opportunity for people in a 1031 exchange. And it's an opportunity for us to accommodate them. So what we did is we set up the Delaware Statutory Trust, which is Invest Direct Self Storage. We call it Invest Direct because investors don't have to go through a broker dealer. They don't have to pay the 5 to 9% front end load on that. They can invest directly with us as the operators on this. And another thing that we love about this is that we've already had this property. This is a property that, that our operating partner has already done the value add on. So they took it from very unstabilized to stabilized. And now it's very predictable, which is really good for a Delaware statutory trust. Now we probably should circle back and talk about what a DST is though. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've definitely talked about DSTs in prior episodes here at the Real Estate CPA Podcast, but for everybody who's not listened to, to one of those episodes, what is a Delaware Statutory Trust? Yeah, so it's an ownership model that creates a legal entity that allows the fractional investment of 1031 exchange funds or other funds as well, and it allows the fractional investment. You have a professional management company managing it. So it takes the hassle of managing a property off of the uh, investor's hands and it preserves the 1031 exchange. It doesn't require a tenant in common arrangement, which is a huge hassle for those who know about that. And it also takes the debt off the hands of the individual. The individual doesn't have to go out and get new debt. They have all that debt capacity that's maintained now. They can go invest in something else if they want with debt. And basically, it takes away a huge amount of pressure and stress that 1031 exchange investors have in trying to scramble to find fitting replacement property. And once you're in a DST, how do you get out? You can never get, anyway, seriously, um, Brandon, that's a good question. It's like any other fund or syndication, you're locked in for the time of that, you know, investment. It's typically seven to 10 years. 
we're setting up ours for 10. That's what the lender wanted to do, you know, a 30-year AM loan with a 10-year balloon. So we've set up ours for 10. The great news, I just talked to a guy from Vail, Colorado about an hour ago, and he said, hey, I'm 70. I've done all these 1031 exchanges. I've got like two, actually it's 2 million in one deal and then like one and a half million in another. He's like, there's no way. He said, I'm definitely going to do swap till I drop. I definitely want to have property in my name, not cash when I pass away, whenever that is. He said, can I get, what, what do I do at the end of this DST? I said, well, you can roll over into another one. Or if you really want to at 80, you can get back into active management and roll into another 1031 and something active, which I knew he didn't want to do. But that's, that's what can happen. Now, if you really, in a bad situation, you want to buy out, you know, any DST investor, just like any other syndication investor, can try to find a buyer for their shares. Yeah, it usually comes with a discount, of course, um, yeah, that's at least right. from my experience. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, right. So basically, just to be clear, what a DST allows someone to do is if they have 1031 exchange capital, they can invest it into the DST. And basically, instead of having to go and identify their own replacement properties and then continue to manage that portfolio or whatever, they can invest in DST and basically assume the position of a passive investor. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So they don't have all that hassle of managing it. No toilets, tenants, and trash. And they're likely going to be getting a check every month or every quarter from that DST operator. And they don't have to do anything and they can maintain their 1031 at the beginning and at the end. Is your DST fund an open fund or do people have a limited time to get into those? And maybe are, are most DSTs open funds where if you find one that you like, whenever you do a 1031 in the future, you know that you can go and call up that sponsor and, and place that investment. There are some very large sponsors like Inman who I think they do like a billion a year or something. No, Inland. What am I saying? Inman is the real estate newspaper. Uh, Inland that does these very large deals, K properties, et cetera. They're, they're actually a broker dealer for a bunch of deals. But they have a, a wide variety available, but none are open that I know of, Brandon, because every time you're investing in a DST, you're investing in a set property or small group of properties. It's almost always one property. And how does the after-tax return work on DSTs compared to regular investments? You know, when you do a 1031 exchange, normally you're rolling forward your basis. There's less to depreciate there, which means that if you are buying good deals, <laughs> you'll probably have some taxable income at some point. Is that kind of the same way that it's going to work in DSTs as well? Yeah, it should work the same way. I'm not a tax expert like you, but we believe, you know, that the, the accelerated depreciation from cost segregation would work the same way in a DST property. The reset basis back to day one for depreciation schedule, that kicks in, of course, when you get this new property. But uh, we believe everything else would be about the same. Now, investors don't get a K-1, interestingly, with a DST. They actually get a letter from the CPA firm managing it. And then the, the uh, CPA of the individual uses that to prepare their taxes. You're probably familiar with that. Yeah, very similar to a tech type of arrangement. Yeah, mm -hmm. yep. right. One of the strategies we've discussed on the podcast had been like a 721 exchange. Um, have you ever heard of one of those? Yeah, so my understanding at the end of a fund, if, if there's a hard close at the end, let's say it's a 10-year fund, like our Wellings Income Fund 1, if all of the appreciation had built up to one end point, 
And if the investors are interested, technically, we as the sponsor could, instead of just paying them out, we could do a 721 exchange of the shares of our fund into another fund. Sometimes those are called up REITs, but I don't think that's a great name because it's not always into a REIT. It could be, I mean, if I sold my company to Warren Buffett and I didn't want cash and I didn't want all that capital gains and to keep depreciation recapture, well, I could choose to do a 721 exchange and exchange the shares of my stock for the shares of Berkshire Hathaway. And, you know, I could forego capital gains by doing that. And that's certainly an option. It's not one used very often, though, from what I've seen. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I've actually never seen someone actually execute a 721 exchange, you know, in that manner. It's just been something, it's a really nice strategy for someone who's interested in doing something like that. Like I said, it's uncommon, at least to my experience, I've never seen someone actually do it. Right. So is there any other benefits outside of the ability to take, say, uh, 1031 exchange proceeds? Is there any other benefits to running a DST that from a, a traditional syndication? Yeah. So I already mentioned the elimination of pressure. That is, you know, that's not a small thing. I mean, I talk to 1031 exchange investors quite often who are panicked. They're like 10, 20, 30 days into their 45 day window to name a replacement property. And they're feeling like, okay, I finally found one in an asset type I want, but it's overpriced. Or somebody else has told me, you know, the seller knew I had a 1031 exchange. They wouldn't negotiate much with me because they knew I was in a tight spot and they, you know, they had the upper hand. People who sell at the top of the market are often, you know, because it's only 45 days later, they have to name the assets. They're buying at the top of the market, typically. So that's a big, big deal. Just the fact that, you know, people can just easily, very simple process, just sign up for a Delaware Statutory Trust and they don't have any of that. I mean, COVID made it worse. I heard people in the spring were like they were trying to rush out and fulfill their obligation within 45 days. And then the sellers were pulling properties off the market and they couldn't even fly to go see them anyway. So it was, you know, it really simplifies the investment process. Also, it's, you know, a real property interest. I mean, you're getting all those tax benefits we talked about a few minutes ago. DSTs are typically stabilized properties. And people who are older, like the 70-year-old guy from Vail I talked to an hour ago, he wants something stabilized. And he wanted to be able to count on the amount of money he'd get paid. He asked me what the disadvantages were. And I said, well, there's a big disadvantage, I said to a DST. I said, these properties are already stabilized. And you're only getting like a 6% return from the yield of the property. And then maybe another, let's say, 2 to 4% from appreciation per year. That's a pretty big disadvantage. And he said, what? No, it isn't. He said, I'm comparing this to actually going out and buying an annuity. And with these low interest rates from insurance companies, I'm getting like 1.5% from an annuity. And I wouldn't be able to sustain my 1031 exchange. So he said, you know, the 6%, which again, I thought was a downside. He thought it was pretty good. Um, and of course, the debt capacity issue. And there's a thing called, so there's a thing called bankruptcy remote, which means, you know, if somebody sues me on a tenant in common and they want to lock up the property, well, it could, from what I understand, it could mess with the other investor, the other owners. Bankruptcy remote is how a DST works, which means the other investors would not be impacted at all. And in fact, their name's not on the debt at all anyway. So I really like that. 
Um, some disadvantages of a DST would be the one I said, which is the low returns in general. Number two, typically there's a broker dealer fee. We don't have any, but there's a lot of broker dealer fees and that's a problem for, you know, a lot of people just hate that. Uh, the $2.1 million guy just hated the fact that he had to pay this broker dealer, but it was kind of his cost of admission. Another issue is loss of control. I mean, if you're the type of person that wants to be hands-on and manage every property, you're probably not going to like somebody else managing it for you. And then the thing that you mentioned earlier, which is that there's a high chance that it's going to be illiquid. In fact, it's likely you're not going to be able to touch your money if you want it within, let's say you need it in three years. Well, this is probably not the thing for you. The last downside for some people is every DST I've ever seen works with only accredited investors. Now, I don't think there's a requirement in the law that would say that, but everyone I've seen only has accredited investors nevertheless. I would imagine it's because just the sheer amount of capital it needs to be raised for some of these properties in addition to the, you know, you have to advertise, right? And you can't advertise unless you're you're pretty much, you know, advertising towards credit investors. Right. Yep, that's right. All really interesting, Paul. I, I, you know, I'm thinking as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking through this. Do you, I know that you're going through your first ones, maybe you don't have an answer here. I guess I'm just thinking of like the the timing of the windows, right? Because normally you might, you might otherwise say, oh, this investor is great, but they don't have anything that falls within the timing of this, the opening of this DST raising. And how do you plan? Because you're opening the raise window for a short amount of time. Right. And the only investors that you can take on are people that are also within that same window on their 1031 exchange. So how do you how do you deal with that? Do you just keep opening DSTs as you go and you just keep yep. kind of yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So the guy from Vale who called a while ago, he said, I'm just starting to market my properties. I don't expect any chance I'll close till maybe the end of the year. And I said, Well, the DST we're working on now won't be a fit for you. But if you give me some notice, uh, hopefully we can time a slot in a future DST for you. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's really smart. And so you just keep kind of overlapping almost a little bit. Yeah, that's what we want to do. Got it. Got it. Smart. You know, one of the things too, so there's a not a whole lot of self-storage in mobile home park DSTs out there. They just typically, I mean, when people think of DSTs, they almost automatically think of a Walgreens store, uh, triple net lease um, on, you know, like something super predictable, like an Amazon facility, you know. I know a guy who's uh, doing, he's buying, literally buying Amazon sorting centers as soon as they're built. And then he will actually bring in hundreds of fractional accredited investors. And it's sort of like, you know, basically it's preserving their 1031 exchange for 20 years. And I think that's pretty brilliant. But most people haven't thought about doing that with a self-storage or mobile home park. So that's one of the things that we're doing that's sort of unique. And I think that the fact that we already have been, our, our operating partner, I should say, has already been the manager of this particular self-storage, and in the future, it'll be mobile home parks. I think that's an advantage because we have the same marketing, same property manager, same tenants, of course, same financial systems, same operation systems. Everything's continuous. And so our investors, including us, have the you know, the, the certainty that, oh, okay, they already really know this and it's pretty predictable. 
And so that's one of the advantages, especially for older investors who really, like my friend, the 2.1 million, he really just wanted to, he had been a high powered lawyer for decades. He really wanted to relax. He didn't want the hassle of managing a property or knowing that it might be an unstable type property. So that's one of the things that he, that was appealing to him about DSTs in general. Well, this is this is very informative about DSTs. There's like it seems like there's it's a lot there's a lot of advantages if you're looking for income. If you have 1031 exchange money and you're looking for income, a nice stable investment, you know, place to park your cash and just be able to collect the cash flow on it. My question to you is there anything else, you know, I know we discussed a lot today, but is there anything else that people should know about DSTs? I don't think so. I think we covered all the major, you know, the uh, advantages and disadvantages. Um, one thing people don't really think about often is the fact that it doesn't have to be 1031 exchange money. Now, I personally, from where I'm sitting, I wouldn't, if I had cash, I would invest it in a, probably a syndication or a fund, not, you know, this low, you know, these low yield type DSTs. But um, no, I mean, somebody who really wants just stability and the chance for some appreciation at the back end as well and they trust the operator. I mean, it could be for a cash investor as well. And after hearing the guy from Vail tell me that these annuities are now paying one and a half percent, well, actually 6% with some tax advantages sounds pretty good. Paul, if you can explain, and at the end there, you said a low yielding vehicle. Can you explain why a DST is a, a lower yielding vehicle than maybe like a syndication or a fund? I don't know, Brandon, we're going to have to really dive into the weeds to answer that, but I'll do it a little bit and maybe it'll spark some interest there. So a DST cannot have individual tenants. And so, I mean, they can have one tenant only. And so a DST that owns, let's say a Walgreens building has one tenant and that's Walgreens. And they've signed up for, let's say a 20 year lease on that property. And that set that has a set income payment, one payment, one tenant, et cetera. Well, think about a self-storage facility or an apartment or a mobile home park. They have hundreds of tenants and they're coming and going. And the income's not always 100% stable. I mean, you know, there, there's evictions and all that stuff. Well, a DST is not set up for that originally. And that's probably why they were originally those single tenant type facilities. But the workaround by some really smart attorneys, a lot of them are based in Richmond, Virginia, for some reason, the DST people, they've worked it around that you have a master tenant lease. And the master tenant lease has a single tenant. And that single tenant, that master tenant, if you will, is inserted between the DST and the operating LLC that has all the hundreds of tenants. And that single tenant, if you will, that master tenant lease, the DST signs that lease with them, they have to pass up to the DST one rent payment every month. And so that single rent payment really needs to be quite stable. I mean, they're not allowed to pass up, you know, let's say 62,000 this month and 54,000 next month. It's got to be 60,000, period. And so that causes the operator to really want to get a very, very stable type asset. Well, you know, we all know low risk leads to low return, high risk leads to high return or high loss, either one. Well, 
you know, DST operators really want to be in that first space, you know, low risk, low potential return, but stability. And that's why. No, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like a legal issue, pretty much. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it really is. And it really confused me like eight months ago when we were finishing our research on this, I was really puzzled about this issue. And I even wondered if we could even get around it. And then I learned that all these attorneys and other folks have spent, you know, years designing these contracts and this, these structures to, to do exactly that. Well, makes a lot of sense. You know, if our, if our, I was going to say our investors, if, if our listeners uh, want to learn more about you and what you have going on in this DST, what's the best way for them to do so? Yeah, they can come to our website. It's wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S-C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. And they can just put in an inquiry form there. All right. Awesome. So we'll go ahead and we'll drop that link in the show notes below for everybody who's listening who's interested in the DST strategy. I want to thank you so much for taking time to come on the show again today, Paul. Uh, for everybody who's listening who's not heard Paul's first episode, you can go listen to it. Uh, it's episode 50 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. And I think in that episode, we talked a lot about mobile home parks and self-storage. We focus on uh, a lot on those that two asset classes. So go ahead and check those out. And thank you again, Paul, for coming on. Thanks, guys. It was a real honor. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.